Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7, beginning in 13, and please stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, efficacious, authoritative word. Romans 7, beginning in verse 13, the very word of the living God. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, for I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our fathers, we come to a somewhat a complex text of scripture, but that which is important and given to your church, that which was given to a, a fledgling church in Rome, ordinary church members, not theologians, we pray that we would receive your word this morning with wisdom and grace. Lord, by your spirit, would you help us to understand and to apply all the things found here in your law, and ultimately, Lord, would you show us Christ, who is our life and salvation. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. God's grace never issues a license to sin. God's grace never issues a license to sin. Justification by grace alone never encourages the forsaking or disparaging of God's law and commandments. Salvation, apart from the works of the law, never supports moral laxity or any form of lawlessness. These are points that Paul is clarifying in Romans chapters 6 and 7. He is answering, as we have noted over the past few weeks, he is answering the charges of his critics that his, namely Paul's doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, must necessarily teach some form of antinomianism. What is antinomianism, you might ask? It's that erroneous teaching that once a person is saved through faith in Christ he or she is no longer required to live an obedient life according to the law. In other words, once a person becomes a Christian, he or she needn't worry about godliness or conformity to the law because when sin is abundant, grace is superabundant. Because when sin is abundant, grace is superabundant. It's the charge that Paul answered back in a previous chapter. 
In chapter 6, in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? You see, when the gospel is proclaimed and the, the deficiency of the law uh, is expressed that it cannot save, then there will be those who will immediately think one thing or the other. One, that the law is no longer of any use, and so we can let sin abound, so grace will abound. Or there will be Pharisees who will say, how dare you say the law has nothing to do with our salvation? If you do that, there will be these kinds of people who will disregard the law. And so these questions of law and how it relates to sin and how law and sin relates to gospel are massively important for the church. It's why Paul takes so much time and so much care to move through this argumentation in Romans 5 through 7 so that we would recognize, number one, that the law cannot justify you. Number two, that the law on its own cannot sanctify you. And number three, that Christ obeyed the law for you and Christ gave his life for your sins and that he is the Savior, not the law. That he is the Savior, not your moral performance. And that's what's being expressed over and over in different ways to help us understand this glorious gospel that Paul proclaimed he was not ashamed of because it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. To everyone who believes. Antinomianism is not what Paul is teaching. You see, some would say, why worry about sinning or living a holy life when God's grace is so lavish and plentiful? Paul is not teaching this at all. But there were some who were charging him with this. Let me ask you this morning, is this the way that you have understood the Christian life? This negative, dismissive view of the law of God for the life of the Christian is absolutely pervasive in the modern church. Modern Christians give very little attention to the law as a guide for the Christian life, as that which the Lord uses in our lives as those who are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there's a disparaging of the law to say that it no longer really plays a vital role in our lives as Christians. Let grace abound, and I'm not going to worry too much about the sins in my life because when I sin, and there are lots of them, then there's so much more grace for me. But this is an entirely deficient and erroneous, even heretical view of the Christian life because the gospel is that we are brought into union with Christ. And when a sinner is brought into union with Christ, we are not only justified, but we are being what? Sanctified. We cannot but be sanctified if we are in union with the risen Christ. And so if any here this morning have understood the Christian life as that which dismisses or disparages the law as having no place in our thinking or no real place in our lives, then you are gravely mistaken. Paul certainly didn't believe or teach any form of antinomianism against the lawism. On the contrary, Paul taught that there were moral implications to being justified by grace through faith in Christ. 
he taught that when someone, by grace through faith in Christ, was freed, now listen, was freed from the crushing demands of the law as a means of salvation, that person was then set free and empowered to obey God. Not perfectly, but gratefully. Not flawlessly, but increasingly through a lifetime of sanctification. Salvation, the apostle argued, was not just about being saved from something, but being saved to something. Salvation was not just about, is not just about being saved from hell or from sin or from uh, the second death, but also to a life of growing conformity to God's Son, to a life of communion with God, a life of mortification of sin and vivification of life, a life of spiritual growth and maturity. It's what Paul meant when he declared in verse 6 of this same chapter, chapter 7, but now we are released from the law, okay, released from the law, again, as a means to being saved, as a means of earning our salvation by obedience to it. We're released from that so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. The new way of the Spirit is the new way of walking in Christ, united to Him, forgiven in Him, counted as righteous in Him, justified in Him, and as that person in Christ, we are not living a life under the crushing demands of the law to earn salvation because salvation is ours in Christ. But the law doesn't go away as the detractors were charging Paul with saying. The law is a guide for the Christian life. The imperatives don't go away. No, we are commanded to live lives of thankfulness and growing obedience in the Lord. Serving in the old way of the written code is seeking salvation through good works, through law-keeping. It's striving in your own strength and seeking acceptance from God on your own terms through imperfect moral effort. This new way, however, the way of the Spirit, is the way of grace. It's the way of grace. It is living by grace through faith in Christ that is resting our faith in the one who, without fault, perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of God's law in our place, and as a spotless lamb, as a sublime law keeper, was brutally crucified on a Roman cross. Not only was he nailed to the cursed tree with metal stakes through his hands and feet, but was nailed there, kept on the cross, by our wretched sins. Our sins, as the hymn writer writes, held him there. Our sins held him there. It wasn't just the metal spikes. It was our sins. And bearing our sin on the cross, God delivered upon his beloved son the unspeakable stroke of his holy justice, unleashing the full weight and measure of his wrath and curse for sin on his innocent, beloved son. We do everything we can to protect our children from even the smallest kinds of harm, probably to a fault. God was pleased to crush his son for you 
and for me, for our salvation, to pay the debt we could not pay. That which was justly due to us was willingly accepted by him. What love. The English Puritan John Owen asked, quote, did we deserve Christ's love? No, we deserved wrath, not love. And this thought ought to be enough to humble you and bring you into the best attitude of mind to meditate upon the glory of Christ's love as mediator, end quote. And it's precisely when we abide in that saving love, dear ones, and dwell on that saving love that we are irresistibly compelled to serve Jesus as our king, not as our buddy that we're happy to sin against because we know he's just going to still be there tomorrow, but as a sovereign king whom we love and admire and respect, we are irresistibly compelled to serve him and to obey him with childlike obedience according to his holy commands. Again, not because it adds to what Christ has done. Our obedience does not add one stitch to the robe of righteousness, which we've been given. If we tried to add a stitch to it, that stitch would ruin the garment because that stitch of our righteousness would be tainted with sin. Oh no, our salvation is complete in Jesus. But because we've been set free to obey and have been set free to serve in the new way of the Spirit, we long to do so, we are compelled to do so. And obeying God's commands are not burdensome when our obedience stems from gratitude for Christ's perfect work of redemption and not from the futile attempts to earn a right standing with God. This question of the relationship between law and sin is what Paul has been dealing with in verse 7 and onward in this chapter. Again, he was being blamed with teaching that the law's function of exposing and even aggravating sin in the heart of mankind implied that the law itself must in some way be sinful. Paul asks in verse 7, therefore, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, he says. Heavens, no. No way. He then goes on, as we saw last week, to explain why the law is not sin, but that which, again, reveals and arouses sin within us. No, the law is how we understand the nature and the sinfulness of sin and our need for a Savior. It's what it says there in verse thing, excuse me, verse 13 at the end, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin uses the law, Paul explains, to stir up sin within our hearts, thus underscoring our great need for grace. Paul ends the section in verse 12 by making clear, as we saw last week, that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This then brings us to verses 13 through 20, where the apostle begins by anticipating another question that might be asked by his critics. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. By no means. It was sin, he writes, producing death in me through what is good, that is the law, 
in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. The law is given to us so that sin would become sinful beyond measure. Sin, in other words, sought to use the law for its own purposes, to bring death. But God, in His saving purpose, used the law to reveal the nature and heinousness of sin and then lead us by His grace and Spirit to His beloved Son for salvation from that sin. The law is not sin, nor is the law that which brings death. Rather, God's law is that which exposes sin, sin which in turn produces death in us. That is what Paul is explaining here in Romans 7. For as Paul writes in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin is the problem. Sin is always the problem. The law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. In his notable 17th century book entitled, you guessed it, The Sinfulness of Sin. What a great title. The Puritans have the best titles. The subtitle is like half a page. The Sinfulness of Sin. Puritan Ralph Venning. He explains that, quote, sin is the quintessence of evil. It has made all the evils that there are and is itself worse than all evils it has made. It is so evil that it is impossible to make it good or lovely by all the arts that can be used. We can dress it up. We can put glitter on it. We can make it look beautiful. But in the end, sin is sinful and it's wicked and it's the greatest evil. Now then, you'll remember that a couple of weeks ago, we considered the question, who is Paul speaking of when he employs again and again the personal pronoun I in this text? Is Paul being autobiographical as a regenerate Christian believer? Is he being autobiographical in speaking of himself in his pre-conversion condition? Or does the I, the personal pronoun I, refer to something else? Well, again, a couple of weeks ago, I expounded on this in the view that I believe best interprets the first person personal pronoun I in this text is Paul referring not chiefly or primarily to his own experience as autobiographical in nature, but as Israel's collective experience under the law of Moses. And this, as I mentioned before, is a rhetorical device used by Paul that is often used in the first century. In a word, Paul is using the personal pronoun I as a rhetorical device to describe the experience, the collective experience of Israel under the Mosaic law as it relates to their indwelling sin. Of course, what Paul describes was also his own experience before he was saved, and the experience, in a very real sense, of every unconverted person's struggle with sin and its relation to the law until they are delivered by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
For many, many years, I never took a firm position on Romans 7 as to who the I was, because it can be quite confusing. I tried to bring out some of those points a couple of weeks ago. But this understanding of Paul speaking of the collective experience of Israel under the law as a means of salvation in their minds makes perfect sense, I believe, as we unpack this section. The first thing we must notice is Israel's colossal failure to keep the law and ours. Look with me again at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. First of all, does that sound like a converted person? Would you walk outside and say, I am sold into sin. I am sold in sin. I'm a slave of sin. If you said that, you're contradicting everything that Romans 6 tells you that you are, which is no longer enslaved to sin. Just a little side note. Israel had the law, and they believed that the law was good, righteous, holy, and spiritual. That is, originating from God and given to Moses on Mount Sinai for the people. Even so, while believing that the law was good and spiritual, Israel remained enslaved or sold under sin. They were of the flesh and not of the spirit. Now, I understand there was a remnant. I understand this. But generally speaking, and those to whom Paul is arguing with here, he's making this point, And you'll see why he's making it again in just a moment. And he's already been making it in Romans, actually. All one has to do to understand Paul's argument here is to hearken back to the sullied history of Israel to recognize that they were sold under sin. As a people. And Paul accurately describes the Jews in this letter back in Romans 2, 17 through 24. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans 2, 17 through 24. Remember, as Paul is describing the universal depravity of mankind, both Jews and Gentiles, under God's curse, under God's wrath, because of their exceeding sinfulness, this is the way he describes Israel. Quote, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul was calling to account the extreme hypocrisy of Israel and of those who are arguing against him for salvation through the law. Think of the idolatry that took place in the Old Covenant and the time of the judges. Think of the string of wicked kings and the large numbers of wicked priests who, the Bible says, devoured their own people. They were supposed to be shepherds of the sheep and they were devouring the sheep. Think of the compromise and law-breaking of the southern kingdom, the cyclical rebellion against God 
The Old Testament major and minor prophets are saturated with stinging rebukes towards Israel for their idolatry and apostasy and rebellion. For example, the prophet Habakkuk complained to God to do something about these wicked people whom you've placed me in the midst of. He says, O Lord, in Habakkuk 1, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's describing Israel. Lord, why don't you do something? Of course, then next God says, oh, I'm about to do something you won't believe. And then he explains to him, Babylon is coming to crush them. And Habakkuk says, wait a minute. We're at least more righteous than they are. Can we sort of, whoo, it's a little much. And then, of course, we have that glorious verse, which is quoted in the New Testament numerous times, that the righteous shall live by faith. In his woes to the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus says, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. You build these grand monuments and tombs for your prophets, but you killed them, he says. Israel's attempts to keep the law was an abysmal failure. That's a point that Paul is making that we don't want to miss in this section. Even those who believed God's promises and sought to live holy lives, men like Moses and David and Josiah and Daniel, women like Esther and Hannah, though they were godly and they put their faith and trust in the promises of God, they didn't obey without fault. They weren't without sin. They too fell short of God's glory, of His righteous standard. But dear ones, here's the bridge to us today. It wasn't only Israel that was a colossal failure in keeping the law. We too are a colossal failure in keeping the law. You are a failure in keeping the law, and so am I. And it is a mercy that God makes this clear to us in His Word. So we don't seek salvation through that which cannot give it. That's the point of this text. We see that the law is good and righteous and spiritual, and we acknowledge that. But in our natural state, in our fallen and sinful condition, in our sinful flesh, in our slavery to sin, when we are in unbelief as non-Christians, we fail to obey. And through the law, our sin is exposed as if under a microscope. We say that the law is good. People say things like this in public who do not trust in Christ. Yes, the law, the law, do not murder. I mean, that's a good thing. But then we do that which we say is bad. We do not conform to the law. Through the law, our sin is exposed. There is evidence of this slavery to sin in Israel and in those who are not in Christ today. And remember, once again, Paul is teaching the relationship between sin and the law in response to his Jewish detractors that said this in chapter 7, what then shall we say? 
Did that which is good then bring death to me by no means? Look with me again at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Again, Paul is trying to show the relationship between law and sin, and he is speaking as a kind of representative of Israel under the covenant uh, of works, under the law, and that which cannot save, but so many are wondering, why is it that I have all these things going on in my heart? I want to obey the law. I think the law is good, but I can't do it. I'm not able to do it. And here's all the evidence. Look at verse 15a. I don't understand my own actions. There is confusion and darkness that sin brings. It clouds and darkens the mind. It deceives the heart and the intellect. If you were to tap on the shoulder of an unbeliever today and begin asking them, peppering them with questions, I promise you at one point they're going to say, I don't really know why I do it. I don't really understand why I do these things. 15b, the second part of the verse. Do I, I do what I hate, not what I want. I do the very thing I hate. People under the bondage of sin, under slavery to sin, sin as a master, are under sin's deceit. So because of sin, they do the very things they hate. We see this all the time in the world today. People hating the things that they do, and yet they keep on doing it. Thirdly, the description that nothing good dwells within me, in my flesh, that is. There's a a showing of, a revealing of of depravity. Nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. Fourthly, we desire to obey without the ability to obey. Look at verse 18 again. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That's because the Spirit of God does not live in an unbeliever. The bondage of sin, the mastery of sin, deceives and controls us. It was Israel's experience that while they saw the law, knew that it was good, they kept doing the things that they knew were wrong, and they had not the ability to do it on their own. In the next chapter, chapter 8 of Romans, Paul writes in verses 7 and 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's Paul's point here. And then he finally says he wants to do good, but keeps doing evil. Paul personifies sin in these verses as he does in prior verses in this section of five through seven. He speaks of sin as if sin is a conqueror that has taken up residence in the heart and mind of fallen Israel and fallen humanity. 
in verses 17 and 20, he especially underscores his point, doesn't he? Saying, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This is not a kind of uh, Paul saying that there is a, a kind of schizophrenia going on here. He's making the point that sin has taken up residence in our hearts. He's making the important point that sin, not the law, is Israel's problem. It is also ours. It is also ours. It is also humanity's biggest problem, sin. Perhaps you're here this morning, and this experience that Paul has been describing is your own experience. Maybe you have been somewhat connected to a church. Maybe you have family members that you know that are committed Christians and you don't quite understand what's going on here, but as you, as you hear Paul describing the experience of Israel as being under the law and saying that the law is a good thing and yet I don't have the ability to obey it and I want to do good things, but I find myself not doing them and actually doing the things that, that I know are not good. And you're, you're having that going on in your life and you, you feel like you're under the weight of your own sin and guilt. Well, this is what Paul wants everyone who comes across this text to understand, that the law and good works and performance of the law and good intentions, and family affiliations, and whatever else cannot save you. It leaves you in your sin, and in your desperation, and in your depression, and in your weakness. And when you stand before God, when you die, and we all will, you will stand before Him clothed in your own tattered robe of unrighteousness, And even the good things that you've done in your life will be part of the tatters because nothing that you and I have ever done has perfectly fulfilled God's commands. What's the summary of the summary of the law? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us have done either one of those things perfectly for one second of our lives? Not one of us, because we are born in sin, we are born with the disease of Adam, as we learned in Romans chapter 5, and we, we live with that disease of sin, and we, we, we sin against God in our thoughts, our words, our actions, we fail to conform to His law, and the law is there, and still many will look to the law and look to their own good works as a means by which they will be saved, but it cannot save. Only Christ can save. The one who was sent to this world by God the Father to be born of a virgin, as we confessed earlier in the Apostles' Creed, to be born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, and then to live a perfect life according to the law, meeting every requirement, meeting every standard of the law, as the second Adam, the first Adam failed, we fail in Adam, Christ came as the second Adam to perfectly fulfill the law, to fulfill all righteousness. And then, as a righteous substitute, one who has no sin, is a spotless Lamb of God 
He willingly goes to the cross to bear the debt of your sin and my sin. Every wicked thought, every evil deed, everything that you should have done that you didn't, everything that you did that you shouldn't have done, all of those sins, that mountain of sin placed upon the shoulders of Christ. He became sin for us so that in him we, by God's sovereign, lavish grace, might become the righteousness of God in him. So what happens? What's the great exchange that happens? Well, you saw the picture of standing before the holy judgment seat of God where the only thing he can do is be just. He cannot be lax. He cannot relax his judgment or his standards in any way. If he, if he did do that, he would not be God. He is God and he is holy. And so you're standing before God and and here's the difference. If you are in Christ, no longer are you wearing those, that tattered robe of unrighteousness. No, that was nailed to the cross. And you bear it no more. Now you are forgiven of all of your sins and you are clothed with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's a perfect robe. And when God looks down upon you, he sees you in Christ, no longer condemned. No longer do you hear the thunderous condemnation. You hear grace, mercy, love beyond all measure in Jesus Christ. You stand before God, no longer condemned, but justified no longer cast out but brought near, no longer separated from God but reconciled to God. And this is what it means to be in Christ. And so this experience that Paul describes that Israel has on, uh, uh, in Romans 7, it's a, it's a description of Israel, and he's trying to respond to the, the critics, the Jewish critics who are bringing these these uh, charges against Paul, but it has a wider meaning, doesn't it? It, it? it speaks to all of humanity. It speaks to all of those who are outside of Christ and, and contemplating this, this struggle that goes on with believing that morality and the law that comes from God is good, and yet I find myself not able to do it and struggling with it. And then we come to verses 24 and 25. Paul is asking, you know, what hope does Israel have? What hope does he have? What hope do we have in light of the unbending requirements of God's law and the very real guilt of our sin before God's righteous throne? That's what Paul asks and answers in verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will deliver me? Who's the deliverer? My sin is so sinful. My heart is so corrupt. 
My affections are so tainted, and the closer I grow to God in the Christian life, I see that. It's like the person who was walking down the road in a, on his way to a formal, and uh, the car, he was wearing a white tux, and the car drove by in downtown Charleston and splashed water and mud all over him. And he thought, oh my goodness. And the closer he got to the light, the more he saw that his tuxedo was, was a mess. It was ruined. And so we see the greatness of our sin, but we also see the greatness of God's grace. In summary, what Paul has been teaching from chapter 3, is a summary of what Paul has been teaching from chapter 3 and verse 21, that the law cannot save us, but Christ and his righteousness do by grace through faith in him save us. We learn here that we are wretched sinners, but Christ is a merciful Savior. We have failed miserably to keep God's requirements, but Christ kept them all without fault. We deserve God's wrath for sin. Christ bore God's wrath for our sin. Apart from Christ, we are under God's wrath and curse, separated from him, united to Christ. By grace through faith, we are justified, reconciled to God, adopted as his royal sons and daughters, and granted everlasting life. We saw some new titles being given out this week in London. Amidst the grief, there are celebrations of those who are receiving new titles and new positions. And as a Christian, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer our master. We are no longer in Adam. We have been given new titles. We are God's royal sons and daughters, saved by grace, accepted into the beloved, never to be, never to be cast out. Indeed, Apart from Christ, we are under the law's crushing and impossible demands for eternal life. But united to Christ, we are pardoned for our sins, robed in Christ's righteousness, and given the law as a guide for the Christian life, a means not of salvation, but of glorifying God in increasing measure. Wretched man that I am, wretched people that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. While a bit complex, Lord, teaching us some life-shaping truth. Help us, O oh God, to have a right understanding of your law, of its function, in the life of Israel and its function in our lives. We pray that we would never put our trust in it to save us or to sanctify us, but rather that we would look to Christ, who is the perfect law keeper and righteous substitute for our sins. O oh Lord, be glorified in and through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to please stand.